Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, it's really been a pleasure to be here, and I'm <coughs> really impressed uh, about the stamina of this population here. <laughs> it's been a nice day, I understand. Um, and uh, I'm in particularly impressed by the ambition to create this chair uh, in peace research here at Oxford. So I'm going to comment on, on three things. One is a bit on peace studies, one is a bit on peace indicators, and then from there on peace. Uh, so, um, let me start right away with the chair and the peace uh, and conflict studies. Uh, we heard this morning John uh, Glendhill report on his uh, investigation, uh, which I thought was really very interesting. Is there uh, two communities, so to say, a peace community and a conflict community? Uh, I'm not sure exactly where the conclusion landed, but uh, uh, I'll tell you the story behind the background uh, in Uppsala. My chair that was called the Doug Hammarskjöld Chair of Peace and Conflict Research. And we originally proposed it to the, to the government committee uh, that uh, was working on this topic. We originally proposed that it should be called Peace Studies or Peace Knowledge, as it would be in Swedish. Uh, and uh, when we presented this, they had no objection to the substance of what we suggested. This was undergraduate courses. And the only thing they objected to was the title. And they said, peace studies, doesn't that sound a little naive? Mm -hmm. So can or not, could you please inject conflict in there? So then we resolved it. We made our first compromise in our academic history. So we agreed peace and conflict research would be it. And then they said, OK, then it's acceptable. So they passed the whole thing. No more comments. Uh, and after a while, I realized that this was not a bad idea uh, because it would mean that we would have a focus in Uppsala on conflict issues deliberately. Say that we are developing something which we could call conflict analysis, conflict resolution, conflict prevention issues. Many of those things that was coming up very prominently in John's presentation. But that meant that other centers could develop other things. So our colleagues at the Göteborg University, which also wanted to do a peace research department, they called itself peace and development research. So with a focus on development issues, global concerns, resources. Uh, and then you can go down the line. Uh, so there is, for instance, at the, the Kroc Institute in San Diego, which is peace and justice. Uh, and I imagine that we could develop this into a fairly coherent pattern. We could have peace and reconciliation studies. We could have an, a number of things which give a focus for each milieu, because I think it is important not if we are going to be serious in the academic setting, it's important not to be too broad. You need to have a focus, you need to have a center of gravity in what you are doing. And this is what I think we got with the help of this uh, observation. Uh, so there are many, <coughs> many names that can be used, of course, for, uh, for peace uh, and conflict resolution, etc. But they all should mean something, and namely that we give a particular focus. And if we regard this then as a sort of horizontal division of labor, where different milieus contribute different things, together we will have a lot of things, even a lot of things to say about the Syrian situation, for instance. Now, the other thing that this uh, Uppsala experience uh, leads me to think about is that we actually called it the Dog Hammarskjöld chair. Now, Dog, this was 20 years after Dog Hammarskjöld died. Uh, and that was presented in the parliament, and is one of the few unanimous decisions in the Swedish parliament's history. 
uh, to be supportive of this. And the fact that it was called Dag Hammarskjöld was really a strong addition. Uh, uh, it was a good name. It was an acceptable name both in academic circles and in policy-making circles and in the general public. Uh, so the naming of a chair, I think, basically should be uh, in, the, in such names such as these, which convey a lot of integrity, international connections, uh, and not necessarily reflecting the name of a donor or, or a sports person or something like that, but really be relevant for the topic. Uh, so what I would suggest here is that you note that it's almost on the day, 55 years ago, that Doug Hammarskjöld was here in Oxford, on the 30th of May, he delivered one of his most cited speeches, uh, and that was a speech on the role of the international civil servant, which is a very strong statement in favor of the ability to be neutral also in serious conflicts, uh, and that you as an international servant, civil servant, building, he, he refers to the British tradition of civil servants, he could have referred to the Swedish tradition of the same sort, uh, but... <laughs> uh, but uh, 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 it was a way of trying to give a stronger position to international organizations as such. Uh, so I think that could be a topic that could be of interest and perhaps a naming that could be of interest to you when you pursue this, I think, great idea of having a chair here at uh, Oxford University. And let me just finally note that uh, the International Studies Association, which is the real biggest organization relating to these fields, have a number of sub-sections. And nowadays the third largest is the peace studies. It's the one that's been growing the strongest. And for me that is a good indication that peace studies is not as such a controversial concept any longer. Mm. Uh, it is a, an acceptable term. It even has started to gain, gain a strong academic standing. And that's of course what we need if we are going to be effective vis-a-vis -vis students or effective towards policy makers as our ultimate topic is. So uh, I'm just volunteering some uh, uh, suggestions here for how peace studies could be uh, further developed here. My second theme, as I said, was on peace indicators. Uh, and that relates uh, quite clearly to what Roger McGinty presented this morning on the everyday indicators, which I thought was very interesting, and very important. Uh, but I would like to alert us all to the fact that the General Assembly in the UN in September last year passed something which is called the, the 17 sustainable, sustainable Development Goals. And goal number 16 is the achievement of peaceful societies. Uh, and of course they are going to look now for indicators of various sorts. I'm not sure why Roger met people in the World Bank, but they, they are often seen as the provider of data for these kind of things. Uh, and by 2030 it should be possible then to men measure where the, the world has more peaceful societies. And the measures they talk about, uh, strongly relating to us here, is homicides, which national uh, statistical bureaus can collect, but then they also want violent deaths in conflicts. Uh, and that's really where the difficulties arise. Because if you are going to leave this to national statistical bureaus, they will of course collect their nationals and what happens, but they will not necessarily collect the entirety of the, the uh, information. Uh, and the pro program that I've been leading for many years in Uppsala called the Uppsala Conflict Data Program is an ambition to develop a database which is independent 
as independent as you can be from any of these political concerns that could be. And you have, uh, we, what we have developed there are fairly strict definitions, and those definitions are the ones applied by the coders very strictly. No matter what you think about a particular conflict, you collect the information in exactly the same way. Uh, and that, of course, is what makes it credible uh, in an academic setting. And uh, we have regularly an article in Journal of Peace Research on this. And, and the, the way it has been received suggests that this is seen by the academics as very acceptable and useful data. And if it is acceptable in the in academic community, it of course will also have a strong standing in the pol policy-making communities. But the key thing here is that it is done independently, independently from government interests. And we can of course note that this is important because different governments, ambassadors and so on, regularly contact us and, and are dissatisfied with which the way their particular country comes out. They will say typically that what you have listed here as an armed group is just uh, gangsters. They should not be part of it. And even one ambassador told me that he had been instructed from his foreign ministry that to make sure that his country was removed from the conflict list by the time he had finished his stand, his tenure in Sweden. And we said to him, yes, we are happy if it can be removed, but you have to remove it by solving the conflict, not us by taking it away from your list. Uh, so I would argue that it is important, an important academic matter to collect data in this kind of independent way. And that is an additional argument for why universities should do it. Now, whatever will be decided on uh, who will uh, follow this development with the sustainability development goals at number 16, we don't know. Uh, but uh, I'm sort of thinking that if it is not working out in a good way, one should actually follow this and maybe create a shadow report, a sort of a peace research report on what is happening here in case we are, could be worried about what will be reported. Uh, finally, uh, the third point, that is, of course, the concept of peace, uh, and uh, uh, which a bit follows from this. What kind of peace have we been looking at and what is being measured? And I think it is important to get out of just measuring peace in terms uh, of these kind of negative definitions that we normally see uh, observed. Uh, and as we all know here in this room, uh, there is a constant reference, reference to negative and positive peace. And we often cite uh, uh, Johan Galtung for that. Uh, in fact, very recently, Pat Reagan in an article demonstrated that it was, uh, the distinction was developed by Quincy Wright about 10 years earlier. So Johan should have really had a footnote to Quincy Wright, but never mind. Uh, it is a useful... Uh, constellation, negative versus positive peace. Uh, but I think one need to go a step further, and that's what I tried to do in the book that, that Liz uh, was mentioning. Uh, and that was to say, well, what kind of situations do we have after a war? Uh, and does it matter how the war ended? Now, normally when we talk about peace building, uh, we tend to relate that to the fact that there has been a peace process, a peace agreement, and then peace building is the thing that comes after that. What is the alternative? Well, if we think about 
the parties who are fighting the war, and uh, David Keane talked about this this morning, uh, what are they in the fight for? Normally it is actually winning. Normally it is that they want the victory. And of course victories do happen. So what we need to do is not just sort of comparing different peace building outcomes and different peace agreement outcomes, but actually what is the situation after a victory compared to the one after a negotiated settlement. Uh, and that is the tough question that we seldom have asked, uh, and I think we need to do that and in order to be able to have a good uh, response to those who say, no, let's pursue this war a little more than we are in, and then we are going to establish a peace that really will be a lasting peace. So that, that leads me then to the suggestion that we should think about quality peace both in terms of how, the, uh, as a measurement, both after a war that ended with negotiations and after a war that ended with victory. And let's see which one is performing the best. Uh, and that's what I've tried to do uh, in this work. So let me just summarize very quickly what this leads me to, uh, looking at uh, civil war kind of situations uh, as well as interstate war kinds of situations and see if there are any elements that, that emerge in all of them that we could say are, would be the elements that empirically seems to lead to a lasting condition of, of peace, which we could say is not just the fact that there is an absence of war, that the war has ended, but that there is actually a quality to that kind of situation which uh, may make it unlikely that the war will restart or another war will emerge. So now three conclusions that I come to. And the first one I, I, we could call respect for human dignity. Uh, that the, 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 when a, a negotiated agreement ends, the kind of arrangement that is being put in place needs to be an agreement that includes matter of human rights, but it may also have to include minority rights in some sense. It definitely has to include gender equality. There's quite a lot of data and statistics now showing that gender equality is actually more important for a continuation of a peaceful condition than, say, democracy or uh, other uh, uh, variables that we have looked at. And I thought that also came out a little from the things that Roger mentioned uh, when he demonstrated there was a difference between the way women and men responded to what is everyday uh, peace. Uh, the women's situation is definitely quite different from the male situation and it, indeed that is what I think is captured by uh, gender equality. Uh, now if you compare that uh, for, with respect to victories and peace agreements, you will see that the peace agreement outcomes have a better record. They are normally uh, much more transparent, they are normally not a lot more of international involvement and they do have fewer returns to war than the victories. Victories is normally associated with one group winning and imposing its will on the rest of the society. And that inevitably, almost everywhere, almost every case, there are some exceptions, but mostly it leads to a suppression of human rights, it leads to an undermining of minority rights, and it is often associated actually with male dominance. And that you can see very clearly with respect to civil wars. It's more difficult to argue around this when you talk to interstate wars. Uh, uh, and as was mentioned this morning, uh, there are 
obviously some situations where uh, the post-war interstate relations have been improved, and the example given was France and Germany. Well, you can say there has been a lot of what we might call re reconciliation. So in this uh, study, I try to see are there other situations like this, where wars between states have ended in a similar way. And unfortunately, the France-German relationship is quite unique. And you can go around the world and you will see the two Koreas, India, Pakistan that we have mentioned, Ethiopia, Eritrea. You go around and you see there is no real such building of any kind of quality peace uh, like that one. Uh, and these are the victories. So uh, for me, it's fairly clear that the, the way people in general are treated after a, a war is one of the key things for making sure it will be more quality and that it will be more unlikely that the war will return. The second factor is one which we also have mentioned repeatedly today, and that is, sorry, I'm pushing some button here. Uh, uh, and that is the one of safety in the society, that people are safe in the society. And again, this is a typical everyday kind of indicator. Uh, can you go safely with your children uh, to the school, etc.? Uh, uh, in, in this context, it particularly means uh, dealing with the armed forces. What is happening to the armed forces after war? Well, with victory, it's quite clear. The victor imposes, its forces will be dominating. Uh, in a negotiated settlement, this is a central question for restoring security. And then it is a matter of how you make sure you don't have several armies, how you make sure that there is some degree of integration of these different armies into one army, and of course that there is a reasonable civilian control over this. And you can actually see this in, in the studies made of peace agreements, that that is often the thing that is priority when you are uh, trying to implement peace agreements, this, as, as Roger showed, and I have I've seen, I've done similar studies, you see that the dealing with the safety or securities is paramount. And it's actually more important than running to a constitutional election or a constitutional reform or elections. Uh, and of course, victory here is very different. It really means an imposition. Uh, now for interstate relationships, it would basically mean having non-provocative defenses, etc. And again, looking at examples I gave you before, this is not necessarily forthcoming. And final point then, uh, I added something which is a little more, uh, uh, how to say, diffuse, uh, but I call it an expectation that these conditions will be the lasting one. Uh, and based on the idea that peace begets peace. The longer you have had peace, the more you expect peace to remain. But if you have constant experience of conflict, you continuously expect new conflict. So regions in the world which have a lot of conflict uh, really get a real difficulty in moving out of that because you don't have the experience of having solved things peacefully. Regions which have a lot of experience of solving things peacefully all expect peace to remain. These expectations, I think, are really important to investigate. There was a little in, in what uh, Kirsten Bakke presented about trust and so on. Uh, and I think that is a field we should uh, have a little more studies into, how these expectations really are developed. Uh, but the, the expectations are, of course, something cutting through the entire society. 
And this is the way kids are told from, from the beginning whether they will be growing up to fight or whether they are growing up to make their own careers. And, and as we have a person by the name of Mladic at the tribunal in The Hague, it's quite interesting to see his own statements where he says when he was, his father died when he was two years old and his mother immediately told him, you have to avenge your father. Now, if you do like that, you sort of build and continue this expectation of conflict. So I think here is something really important to investigate. Uh, so my definition then of quality peace would include these three elements, that uh, there is really respect for human dignity, that there is a building of safety in the society, and that there is an expectation that these conditions of peace will be the lasting one, and then people will reorient themselves according to that. Uh, and that is, of course, putting very high marks on what we would want as a peaceful society and what could be the ultimate aim of peace studies and peace indicators. Uh, it is, of course, good if we only achieve that the war ends. A ceasefire is, of course, a better thing than a continuation of slaughter. But still, we should not confuse that with peace. It means that the fighting stops, but it doesn't mean that the conflicts have really been settled. And that's where we need to go, and that's the purpose with the whole idea of thinking about quality peace. Thank you.